0: The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. All right, well, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm going to be reading tonight from the ESV, which is clearly a sign of revival to some of you. Actually, the reason I'm reading from the ESV is not because I think they do such a great job with this passage, but because the New American Standard does such a dismal job with this passage. So, we're going to read the whole thing again, and then we'll get started. So, verse 25, 1 Corinthians 7, 25, now concerning the betrothed, literally, now concerning the virgins... I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a woman? They say wife. Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a woman? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you of that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried and betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to Be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, literally his virgin, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry, it is no sin. If she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the spirit of God. well, what a fun passage uh, th- there's there 's something about this passage, as I noted, I think last week, that is wonderfully complicated. There are so many ambiguities and complications throughout this whole passage that it is um, if you love if you love exegesis, if you love Greek grammar. Uh, If you love syntax, um, if you love um, word study, then this passage is just a delight. Um, Of course, it takes a little longer to get ready, but it is a delight. And this passage really is a tough one. Um, So last week we started, and in verses 25 to 31, I'm not going to go into too much detail, but Paul is beginning to deal with the virgins. And, of course, that little phrase, now concerning, takes us back to, what, one. now concerning the things which you wrote to me, then gives, quote, Corinthian slogan, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Um, and then Paul goes and deals with the married, the demarried, the unmarried, so forth. Gets down here, and he says, and now concerning the virgins. So, what is uh, more than likely is one of two things. Either the Corinthians had explicitly asked a question regarding quote the virgins, or they had made certain assertions or assumptions in their letter to Paul that Paul feels um, necessary to bring correction or clarification, okay whatever the case this is this is something that has peculiar relevance for the church in Corinth, and he says it's not a command but an opinion. And, uh, and and again, we need to remember this is apostolic opinion under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but what Paul's doing is, in essence, he's, he's trying to give sensitive, wise, pastoral counsel. That's what he's trying to do. He is not going to be heavy-handed. He's not going to, in a sense, lay down the law of the Medes and the Persians on what needs to be done. Ironically, what it looks like is that there were plenty of people in Corinth who were willing to lay down the law of the Medes and the Persians as to what these people ought to be doing in order to be truly spiritual, all right? And so Paul is basically going to say, in essence, what he has already been saying from the beginning of chapter 7, the, the, that little pivotal paragraph, 17 to 24, the key principle is this, remain as you are, okay? Okay? So if you've become a Christian while you were a slave, don't look to be free, circumcised, uncircumcised, etc., the idea is remain as you are. Why? Because the most important thing about our status is that we are in Christ. Our status is not determined by what we are or are not in this world. Our ultimate status is determined by the fact that we're in Christ. And so Paul's, Paul's general principle is remain as you are. Now, is that an ironclad principle? And the answer is no, because if you were a slave and you have the opportunity to be free then go ahead and use your freedom but of course keep in mind that the lord's freedman is now his slave and the lord's slave is his freedman so in other words no matter what you no matter what your status is you are still a slave to Christ and you're still free in Christ right wonderful paradox and so then when we get down here He's giving his opinion, and he's going to say, basically, so in in light of this present distress, remain as you are. And um, verse 28, in a sense, kind of gives a a concession. Um, I should probably just say something about verse 27. Um, Remember last week, I said verse 27 is probably not about marriage. It's probably about engagement or betrothal. So, are you bound to a wife? That is, are you obligated? And remember, the word in Greek for wife is the same for woman. Woman, wife, is it, it could be either one. Context determines. So, here I think it is the idea of, are you obligated, i.e., in engagement to a woman, do not seek to be free. That is, don't seek to undo the obligation. In other words, remain as you are. Are you um, Are you free? Have you been loosed? From a woman, that is, I think, the idea... By the way, this word, loose, is used regularly in biblical and extra-biblical Greek for um, um, reversing the terms of a contract. So, by the way, this word is not used in terms of divorce by Paul, okay? Are you free from a wife? I would say, are you free... Have you been freed from an obligation to a woman then don't turn around and seek a wife. In other words, remain as you are. But then verse 28 is the concession. And Paul makes concessions throughout this whole section because he's giving his, basically, his judgment, his, his opinion. If you do marry, in other words, if you're engaged and you go through with the marriage and become married, you haven't sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she's not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. And so Paul's basic counsel is, so remain as you are. So if if you are uh, engaged, then, then don't try to get unengaged. And you, if you marry, as a result of that, it's not a sin. Okay? Um, if, if you get out of it, that's not a sin, right? And so Paul's just saying, I'm just trying to spare you. And one of the important things in this passage is... This world in which we live is not our home. The form of this present world is passing away. The time has been compressed. In other words, we live in the in, in, at the end of the age. The, 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 the last times have come upon us. And so Paul is saying to us, in a sense, because... Of, uh, of our perspective on the end, because of our perspective on the future, because of the reality of the present trials. It's just best to remain as you are. Now, as, as followers of Jesus, we are people who have been marked by eternity, and so, we don't live under the, the dominating powers of the circumstances and status and stations of life. So when Paul says, when Paul says, so, from now on, those who, uh, are married live as though they're not. Paul's not violating what he said earlier in the passage. Um, he, when he says, "Those rejoice in as those who are not, those mourning as those not," he 's not actually saying, uh, "If you 're mourning, stop it. If you 're rejoicing, stop it. If you 're married, go home and act like you don't even have a spouse. It's not what he 's saying. What he is saying is that because of the time in which we live, we live in the in the time between the times, in a sense. We live in the last days. We live in the inaugurated kingdom of God, the already and the not yet. Because that reality is pressed in upon us, it's not a matter of saying, um, don't seek to get married because Jesus is going to come back any second. It is to say, though, that because of the time in which we live, our perspective on all of life is completely different. Our perspective on marriage is different. Our perspective on rejoicing and tears are different. Our perspective on using the world is different. Our perspective on possessions is different. Because we are, we are the most peculiar people on the planet if we would actually be consistent with who we are. If we were consistent with who we are, we would be we would be future people living in the present, understanding the profound tension in which we live, knowing that upon us the ends of the age have come, and Jesus, through his resurrection and ascension, has changed absolutely everything so that not even marriage is the same for us. And so Paul is wanting them to realize this. By the way, this is this message, even though the language itself is fairly um, peculiar, the message itself is consistent with what he's been talking about in Corinthians all along. The cross changes everything. The Spirit changes everything. And so now we get to verses 32 to 35. This is fun, too, because... So I'm just going to tell you why this is sort of a challenging passage. It doesn't seem challenging at first glance, right? You know, what it looks like is Paul saying, verse 32, I want you to, I'm telling you this because I want you to be free from concern. Okay. I want you to be free from concern. Um, this is not some sort of apostolic, uh, don't worry, be happy kind of thing. Okay. But what Paul's saying is that he doesn't want us to be encumbered by anxieties, by cares, by concerns. Now, there's a traditional way of understanding this text. The traditional way goes something like this. What I want you to be free from are the anxieties and cares that come from married life. You You can see how that ends up being somewhat a conventional, traditional view of this passage, right? Okay. Why, why does that sound, why does that have a, a ring of, of truth about it? Well, because the passage goes like this. So the unmarried person, okay, it has man and woman. The unmarried person, they're concerned about what? The things of the Lord. The married person is concerned about what? Well, the text says, the things of this world, how he, she, is to please husband, wife. All right? So it looks like on the face of it that what Paul is saying is, um, I want you to be free from worry, so clearly avoid marriage at all cost. That's what it looks like, right? Right? Yeah, And some are like, yes, my motto in life, <laughs> right? <laughs> I want to make a suggestion, I'm not willing to die on this little hill, but I want to make a suggestion, and that is, I don't believe that that's Paul's main point here. And the reason I don't think that's Paul's main point is because the same word that's used for worry, care, anxiety is used all throughout. The unmarried has anxiety about how to please the Lord. The married has anxiety about how to please a spouse. Paul has started off by saying, I want you to be free from anxiety. Okay? Now, the only way the traditional view works is if you take the word for worry or care and say Paul uses it in two different ways. Positively, anxiety about how to serve the Lord. Negatively, anxiety about how to please your spouse. All right? That that seems, I mean, at least to me, that seems um, fairly untenable. I think that Paul's, in a sense, his his umbrella statement is, I'm writing this so that you're free from anxiety. And then he goes through and just actually shows how unmarried people have anxiety and how married people have anxiety, all right? So that's, that's how I understand. Uh, so I think, I think that Paul wants both married people and unmarried people to be free from anxiety, and there's probably, at least in my estimation, no good reason to look at it in the traditional view that an unmarried life is an anxiety-free life, whereas a married life really stinks because all you're worried about is how to please the other person. I think Paul's point is whether you're married or not, there are certain cares in this life, and he doesn't want us going through this life living with concerns because those concerns and anxieties are not the main point of life. Whether you're married or not. All right. So let's go through this and see if this works. The concern of the unmarried man, he is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. All right. So now, in other words, there is, in fact, sort of a, a focus for the unmarried man. But notice what Paul still puts it. He's concerned, he's anxious about the things of the Lord, how he may please the lord and then you get this this immediate contrast the concern of the married man now the concern of the married man is he's concerned about the things of the world how he may please his wife now if all paul said was he's concerned about the things of the world what would that sound like to you it's not a very positive sounding thing is it in fact, the, the, the parable of the four soils kind of comes echoing back, right, with the, with the uh, seed that's sown among the thorny ground, right, and the cares of the world, the anxieties of the world choke it out, right? And, um, but, but Paul's actually specific about what cares of the world he's talking about here, and that is that a married man has the worldly care of needing to please his wife, and what do you think that means? Well, it has to mean at least providing for her, okay. protecting her, seeing that she's happy. Okay. Now, he says his interests are divided. So the unmarried person is anxious about one thing, the married person is anxious about in a sense two things he's been divided he has cares and concerns about the things of god and he's got cares and concerns about how to please his wife then 34 b the concern of the unmarried woman and the virgin the unmarried woman is going to be the demarried woman either by widow Widowhood or divorce, and then the not married woman, that is the virgin who's never been married. And what are they concerned about? Well, they're concerned about the things of the Lord. And then notice this little phrase that she may be holy in both body and spirit. Well, this is sort of peculiar because who actually should be concerned about being holy in both body and spirit? Only widows? Everybody, everybody. So I take this little phrase, how to how she would be holy in body and spirit, in, 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 at least in this way, that this is the same kind of language that is analogous to how she may please the Lord. Okay? Just how to be pleasing to the Lord. Holy in body and spirit. Um, there may also be a sense in which the Corinthian influence is seen here. You could imagine one of the things that was being pushed on women not to marry is that if they marry, they they are defiling their spirit because of the physical contact with a man. This goes all the way back up to seven one. I think it's very possible that what you have is Corinthian influence here, and Paul says, and so here's a big concern for the demarried and virgins, how they're to be holy in both body and spirit, uh, how they're supposed to please the Lord. In other words, they have this anxiety on them as to what that is supposed to look like. In the concern of the married woman, she's concerned about the things of the world. What does that mean? How she may please her husband. Now, is there anything fundamentally wrong if you're a husband or a wife of seeking to please your spouse? Trying to get a consensus here. Okay, good, good. Yeah, some of you're like, well, let me see, if I say if I say no, that kind of obligates me. <laughs> Maybe I'll keep it quiet, right? No, there's absolutely nothing wrong with with seeking to please your spouse, right? And in fact, there's a sense in which you can please the Lord by seeking to please your spouse, right? You know, we we we, we seek Our joy in the joy of others, in this case, we seek our joy in the joy of our spouse, that can be very Glorifying to God, but Paul's point ends up being this: is that on the one hand, unmarried people, you have you're filled with anxiety about how your life is supposed to be pleasing to the Lord. Then married people, you have you have in a sense um, divided uh, interests because you're consumed with on the one hand how to please the Lord, but then you're also consumed about how to be pleasing to your spouse. And notice, and I think this is this is the key. To what Paul is saying. He says, I say this for your own benefit. Well, how does he start this section out? I say this, I want you to be free from anxieties. So I say this for your benefit, and then he says, not to lay any restraint upon you. Literally, the idea, this is this is kind of a vivid language, I say everything that I've just said for your benefit, and I don't say it to somehow put a noose around you. I don't say it to put some sort of restraint upon you. In other words, what I'm telling you is this, this council is not some sort of ironclad noose that is meant to restrain you. Now, why does Paul say that? Well, one, he's trying to be pastorally sensitive and wise. But I think he's also saying that against the backdrop of those in Corinth who were trying to restrain people, who were putting the noose on people who were trying to dictate to them exactly what they should do. So if you're engaged, you better get out of that engagement because if you're going to be holy in both body and soul, how in the world can you actually join yourself to a, a, a to a man and and have him defile you? And so you probably had the ironclad rule makers in Corinth, and what Paul gets down to is the stuff that I'm telling you, I'm telling you not to turn around and put a noose around your neck, but I'm telling you this for your benefit, and what is that benefit? So that I would promote what is appropriate and undistracted devotion to the Lord. Oh, here's something interesting. I've just said everything that I've said, not to put a noose around your neck, but to promote appropriate, undistracted service to the Lord. Appropriate and undistracted service to the Lord from whom? Only the unmarried? Does that seem to make sense? That somehow it's only the un, uh, the unmarried who can express appropriate, undistracted devotion to the Lord? I think what Paul's saying is, is that he is actually saying whether married or not, what I want you to know is the freedom of of actually serving the Lord and serving the Lord in a way in which you're doing it with your whole heart. And this goes whether you're married or unmarried. Gordon Fee makes this wonderful observation. He says, yet our real failure is to take the main point seriously enough. Namely, that we're to live out our lives in the present age, whether married or not, as those who have been determined by the foreshortened time. Being eschatological people, that is being future people now... "...is to free us from the grip of the world and its values, we are to live as if not, that is, as fully in the world, but not controlled by its systems or values, such freedom which comes only from Christ, removes from one the anxiety about which existence might be better." Whichever one is called, to, whichever one is called to, is better as long as it is appropriate and allows unhindered devotion to the Lord. In other words, I think that Paul's main idea here ends up being something like this: You guys are so worked up over whether you should get married, whether you should remain unmarried. The, the, the fact is, is that that's not the main point. The main point is serving the Lord. And so whether you're married or whether you're unmarried, give yourselves in, the, in light of the freedom that you have in Christ to that undistracted service to the living God. If you're married, how much of your heart does God want? A hundred percent. It's not like God says, okay, you know what? Jeff, I understand. Fifty percent Okay. I know, I know some women can be so demanding. So, you know, even on a, on a bad week, 45% is okay. No. How much of your heart does God want if you're unmarried? The same. 100%. In other words, if you're unmarried, what God does not want is a heart that's divided between serving the Lord and so longing to be married that I can't think about anything else. You've met people like that, right? So, they want to be married so badly that they think that that is what's going to make them happy. I don't even know how many people like that we've known over the years. Right, Steve? Dealing way too many. And, and here's, here is, here is the, here is the statistic. 100% of those who felt like marriage was an absolute necessity to achieve happiness in this life, 100% became disappointed very quickly. Is marriage great? Yes, marriage is great, right? Is marriage going to fix your life, make you better? And no. Guess what? If you're a screw up before you get married, when you get married, all you're going to be is a married screw up. <laughs> I've <laughs> I've never seen marriage be like a like a magic potion that just automatically makes somebody into a wonderful marvelous person. Sometimes this isn't this really isn't in 1 Corinthians, but it is worth saying. Sometimes, a young lady is enamored with a young man who seems so noble and so virtuous and 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 seems like such a gentleman and such an awesome guy and then they get married and then they go, then the girl says, what happened to you? Okay, here's here's the answer. Nothing happened to him. The jerk that you now see was a jerk before you got married, you just didn't see his jerkhood. So Paul just wants, Paul wants everybody to give their hearts to the Lord in undistracted service, whether they're married or not. Realizing that anxiety over over being married or not being married or should I get married, that that kind of anxiety, we should be free from it. Our lives should be serving the Lord. You know the people that I've seen become married and end up being truly happy are those that have come to that point in their life where they were completely content being unmarried. I have somebody in mind right now. They had, they were, they were absolutely, they'd come to this place of absolute thorough contentment being an unmarried woman. And then God brought a wonderful husband into her life, and now they live up in Oregon. That's how it works. So the person says, "Oh, I need to get married. I need to get married. I'm getting so old. I'm getting wrinkled. Nobody's going to like me anymore. I'm getting a, a a a pouch. Is that what you call it? a little pouch? Nobody's going to want to marry me, like I'm wrinkled and 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 pouchy. And and the guys like, you know, I'm I'm getting, you know." Um, uh, man boobs and I'm getting love handles and I'm, and I'm just, uh, I'm losing my hair. Who's going to want to marry me? Lord, please deliver me. Bring me somebody. I know what I'd, I'll do. I'll stay up morning, noon, and night looking for somebody on the internet. And then when I find that person on the internet, then finally I will be happy. Not... Okay, so let's move on from that. (laughs) Now, okay, so Paul wants everybody undistracted service, whether you're married or not, okay? So if you're unmarried, be content with it and give yourself wholeheartedly to the Lord. If you're married, be content with it, give yourself wholeheartedly to the Lord. I think that's Paul's point. Now we get to the absolute exciting part, unbecoming behavior towards his virgin. I have slides. (laughs) Everybody's like, what's going to be on the slides? Okay, so back to our translation stuff. So, but if any man thinks he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, notice that's in italics, right? So that's not in the text. This is NAS. If she is past her youth, and if it must be so, and if it must be so, Let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let her marry. By the way, the text, the New American Standard has to choose an absolute um, obscure variant reading at this point because the reading is let them marry. But can you imagine how weird that sounds when it says let them marry? Do I need to read it like that? If any man thinks he's acting unbecomingly towards his virgin daughter, if she's past her youth and it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let them marry. I was going to say that maybe if this was the Arkansas version, that might make sense, but it doesn't. All right, so next, sorry if you're from Arkansas. If anyone is worried, this is NIV, that he might not be acting honorably toward the virgin he is engaged to. So notice that comparison. And if his passions are too strong, notice that comparison. If she's past her youth, if his passions are too strong, they're translating actually the same word. Okay? He should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married. All right? Pretty good. If anyone thinks, ESV, he's not behaving properly toward his betrothed, so his virgin is his betrothed, he's engaged to her, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry, it is no sin. Okay, Uh, New English Bible, just for fun. But if a man has a partner in celibacy and feels that he is not behaving properly toward her, If that is his instincts are too strong for him, this is absolutely awful, and something must be done, he may do as he pleases, there's nothing wrong in it, let them marry. Okay, all right, so those are the different translations, and now let's see the the issues. All right, so first of all, as you look at verse 36, the first issue is, who is the any man, anyone, right? Right? So you, you, you see, if anyone thinks, verse 36, so who's the anyone? Well, very clearly, the New American Standard takes it as a father. Most of the other translations take it as a betrothed man, an engaged man, all right? So that's the first big issue. What does act unbecomingly mean, okay? So you, you can see the way that this is actually just, a, a, just just an exegetical delight, right? Because on the one hand, if it's father, then what does act unbecomingly mean then, all right? So those who advocate this position say they act unbecomingly by not wanting their daughter to get married. Okay, well, just, uh, just a stretch. Um, but yet if it is an engaged man... Does not act unbecomingly. Now, by the way, on the face of it, which one makes more sense? A father acting unbecomingly or an engaged man acting unbecomingly. Yes, says all the men who were engaged. All right. To whom does his virgin refer? Okay? First view, daughter. Second view, his betrothed, all right, is engaged. What does a moss mean? That is, and to whom does it refer? So New American Standard, if she's past her youth, so what would she be? What would this word mean if the New American Standard is right? She is an, a what? An old maid. Net, she's past the bloom of youth. That's a poetic way of saying she's an old maid. Christian Standard Bible, past marriageable age. That's weird because then Paul says, let them marry. NIV, ESV, if his passions are too strong. So are those different? Yeah, they're incredibly different, all right? Then, finally, what does it ought to happen thus, that's literal rendering, it ought to happen thus mean? So in the ESV, they translate it, and it has to be, verse thirty-six. And it has to be if his passions are strong. And it has to be. So this is just full of fascinating exegetical little puzzles. All right. So here are the views: instruction to a father on what to do with his virgin daughter. NAS. Uh, by the way, this is this is a pretty good lineup. Chrysostom, Augustine, Godet, Lightfoot, and Morris, they all take this view, astonishingly. Second view, it's talking about spiritual or celibate marriages. That's a New English Bible view. There are some people that you've probably never heard of um, that are just sort of like um, exegetical criminals in God's um, interpretive universe, like Rudolf Boltmann. okay? And then, third view christian's engaged to be married ESV nIV net christian standard bible is it 's a little fuzzy on the view, but it, you still get it. New living translation fee garland Thistleton, all right, so as we look at this passage, we begin by if anyone i 'm going to take that to be the engaged man thinks he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, so to act unbecoming or indecently or disgracefully, even though it's not defined depending on where we see it, if it's the betrothed man, then that probably, one, probably does not mean fornication. Because Paul would not be this mild if he was dealing with fornication. All right? What it probably does mean is the idea of the engaged man is acting unbecomingly. That is, um, he feels, in a sense, the, the strong temptations, the pull of lust, maybe even begins to struggle with lack of self-control. If he is experiencing this towards his virgin, that is his betrothed. Okay. Now, why do I like this view? Because... It is, by far, the view that has the best consistency as a conclusion to the rest of the passage. In other words, it's the view that actually fits best with the overall context. If you're going along, married, unmarried, demarried, etc., virgins, and then all of a sudden start addressing fathers, not only have you switched gears, you've changed cards. Okay? There's nothing in the passage that would even lead you to remotely believe that if anyone is a reference now to fathers. It's just absolutely foreign to the context. So also the idea of celibate marriage. Here you are going all the way through, married, unmarried, engaged, etc., and now you're going to talk about those who are in a celibate marriage. By the way, there's there's no evidence that there were Celibate marriages going on in Corinth in the first century. Later, in the third century, celibate marriages became more popular as asceticism became more popular, as people were becoming monks. Maybe they wanted to become a monk and they were already married. All right? In fact, Augustine actually advocates this in direct contradiction to what Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 7. So, if you have this engaged guy, and he's really struggling towards his, his betrothed, um, and now the, the next part, if she's past her youth or if his passions are strong. One of the reasons why this um, word is so difficult to translate is because it just basically means over the top. And then the little verb of being is not identifiable as masculine or feminine, just third person singular. So some people take the idea of over the top, if reference to the girl, then past her prime. Okay. But if it's reference to the guy, um, over the top, probably means something different. So if female, pastor prime, past the bloom of youth, um, if male, the idea is strong passions, probably indicating at his sexual peak. So it's difficult to say which one of these is, is, is so, but I think that it refers to the engaged man, especially in light of the idea that he's the one acting unbecomingly to his engaged. All right? So it seems far better to take it with the man who's acting unbecomingly, than to then throw it in that he's acting unbecomingly to um, to this old maid that he's uh, <laughs> engaged to. <right? laughs> in fact, that might be a cure. Now, sorry, and it has to be. So this is this gets this gets strange too. And it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry, it's not sin. So this little phrase, and it has to be, um, the idea is, if the man finds himself in a position where his lack of self-control is leading him down a dangerous path, then what has to be is marriage. The reason is that Paul says, um, when he says, let him do as he wishes. That is, what does he wish to do? If he's acting unbecomingly, and he is over the top in his passions for his betrothed, what is necessary for him to do as he wishes? Well, it is to get married. So it is probably... By the way, why does Paul put it in terms of let him do as he wishes? Probably because of the Corinthian influence of trying to dictate to people what they are supposed to do. By the way, this is not just a Corinthian problem. This is a Christian problem. This is a church problem where people are always trying to dictate to other people what makes you holy. And Paul actually says, let that person do as he wishes. So let him go ahead and get married. Notice that Paul does not say, that's unholy. Right? You realize that it's not unholy, To have passion for the person that you're supposed to be with. Paul's solution is not knock that off. The solution is fulfill your heart's desire and get married. It's not sin. Clearly, what is in view here is a person that does not have the gift of celibacy. You remember going back to the first part in in chapter 7, some are gifted one way, others are gifted another way. And so here you are, you're talking to a person and they're engaged and you can imagine this Corinthian influence of trying to say, hey, you need to to break this off and live a life of of purity and body and spirit and and Paul's saying, listen, listen. Get married. If you're struggling, get married. Now, by the way, just as a footnote, marriage is not the cure-all to lust. Okay? If that were the case, this world would be a very different place but this is what Paul's saying and 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 so then in verse 37 but whoever is firmly establishing his heart being under no necessity but is having his desire under control what is he describing he's describing the person who's in the opposite position as the one in verse 37 and he's determined this in his heart to keep her as her betrothed. He will do well. Now, this is, this is um, absolutely fascinating. The difficulties in this little verse are tough, too. The New American Standard is absolutely, completely unhelpful because what you end up having is an unbelievably strange way of saying not to let your daughter marry. Okay. ESV, by the way, is not helpful either. Notice the way the ESV does it. To keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. You know what that sounds like? <laughs> Perpetual engagement. Yeah, exactly. So the ESV could do better here because this, this um, let's just say, obfuscates the meaning. So when he says, and is determined in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. Honey, guess what? We're engaged. I love you. And I want to keep you just like this for the rest of our lives. That's a very long engagement. That's not what Paul is talking about. Literally, the text just says, let him keep her... Let him keep his virgin, is what it means, is what it says. So commentators are absolutely um, uh, divided over what this means. But I think, actually, the best way of seeing what this means to keep her virgin keep his virgin is the idea of um, not to marry her. Okay? Notice the way the NIV does this is actually helpful. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind and is under no compulsion, under no compulsion what? Under no under no physical compulsion, but has control over his own will. You so see you get the picture. And has made up his mind not to marry the virgin. This man also does the right thing. So in other words, Paul's saying, I, you've got two different kinds of people that are engaged. You've got the one that's just, that's just boiling over and, and is having a hard time controlling himself. And, and that guy needs to get married. He needs to marry the woman that he's engaged to. There are other people though. Maybe you have actually just Settle that in your own mind, you 're not under that kind of uh, physical uh, allurement and so forth, and if that's you, then then it's okay don't don't get married. Remember it 's a gift, one way or the other. verse 38 so then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Do better. What's better? Is Paul actually saying that being unmarried is morally superior to being married? It's not what he's saying. He's talking in terms of what? He's talking in terms of opportunity. Remember, at the very beginning of this passage, what does he say? I wish that all men were even as I am, right? And so all Paul is saying is that as far as opportunity goes, you're just in a better position. In light of the present distress, to be unmarried, you're just in a better position. Now, verses 39 and 40. So a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. So what is, what is Paul doing in 39 and 40? Actually, what Paul's doing is he's, in a sense, kind of giving a short summary and a recap of, in a sense, almost everything that he said before. So the woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. If he dies, she's free to be married to whomever she wishes is that a peculiar statement in the first century? She's free to be married to whomever she wishes? It's absolutely peculiar. In both Jewish and Roman cultures, would be a very peculiar statement. But what Paul's doing is he's doing the very same thing that Jesus does in Matthew chapter 19, and that is he is, he is in a sense, moving this whole perspective of marriage away from a purely male-dominated perspective to more of a perspective in which man as male and female image bearers of, of God actually freely enter into marriage. And so here when he says... Um, She's free to marry whomever she wishes. So, this does away, by the way, if you were Jewish, to any uh, leverate marriage. Um, In other words, the woman has a say in it, but then Paul puts the qualifier on it, but only in the Lord. In other words, if you're a demarried person, here in the case of the spouse dying, you're free to remarry. But here's the one qualifier. You only marry in the Lord. What does that mean? You only marry a Christian. By the way, that goes for everybody who's a Christian. You only marry a Christian. How many sorrows have been multiplied in a person's life because they fell in love with an unbeliever, marry that unbeliever in the belief that they were going to be the instrument by which God brought about the new birth to that unbeliever. Marriage evangelism it is an absolute recipe for disaster and every once in a while god does save an unbeliever and a believer and unbeliever get married and every once in a while god does save the unbeliever and although i'm happy about that in one sense because that person is now in christ and going to heaven in another sense i'm absolutely unhappy about it because the next person that comes along and is dating an unbeliever is going to say well you know what what about them The exception does not prove the rule. If you are a Christian and you're going to marry, you only have one option, and that is to marry a Christian. Young people, you need to understand this. You need to listen. Do not settle for the least common denominator. You do not go up to somebody and say, hey, you're pretty nice looking. I'd like to spend some time with you. Are you Protestant? Do you go to church? No, you marry only in the Lord. Right, And so, what what an absolute travesty when we become unequally yoked, married to an unbeliever, and then all of a sudden, all of that incredible love and the butterflies and blah, 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 and all of that mushy stuff is not enough to sustain a marriage between two people who have absolute divided ultimate loyalties. Young people do not marry an unbeliever. If you grow up in this church and you get engaged to an unbeliever and you ask me to do your wedding, I will tell you, no way. And I've told plenty of people over the years, no way. So then Paul says his opinion, verse 40, I think some of you will smile at this, yet in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is. (laughs) You're a little older, more mature woman, and you're a widow. You know, why mess up a good thing? <laughs> Just live out your days in happiness. And I'll tell you this. We've also seen people in older age that we thought must be a match made in heaven, and it turned out to be a nightmare. Contentment. Contentment, right? If only contentment. Then Paul says a little sarcastically, I think I also have the Spirit of God. (laughs) I mean, Paul obviously knew he had the Spirit of God. And the Corinthians were absolutely positive that they had the Spirit of God in far more measure probably than Paul did. But Paul says, you know, I've got the Spirit of God and I'm speaking with wisdom and sensitivity here. So just real quick in conclusion. So is singleness better than marriage? And the answer is no. Both marriage and singleness are gifts from God. Okay, singleness is only better than marriage if God's gifted you to be single. And marriage is only better than singleness if God's gifted you to be married. And so Paul, of course, has a personal preference. That's what this is. By the way, these comments, that's what this is. Paul's personal preference. He's not giving these apostolic commands. He's saying, listen, under these present circumstances, it's kind of better to be like me. But the real issue at hand was whether or not engaged couples should go through with the marriage. His preference again if you decide not to that's okay that's better but if you also if you choose to go through with it that's good it's not sin so are there are there certain benefits of remaining unmarried Yeah there are certain benefits of remaining unmarried Are there certain benefits of being married Okay, come on, married people. <laughs> yeah, okay, good. Somebody's excited about it. I mean, it like, everybody's like, are there, be- <laughs> are there benefits? No, I, yeah, absolutely, there are benefits. And so, the, listen, if, if God calls you to this life of being unmarried, there are certain benefits that the married person doesn't know, but vice versa is true too, right? Right? And so, here, here's, here's the thing. Um, Paul doesn't want either state to be, either condition to be one of anxiety, but simply carry out your God-given responsibilities in a way that honors him, whether married or unmarried. and So for all of us, whether we're married or single, we need to live in light of the shortness of the time. We need to live in light of the world to come, not to be dictated to by this present age which is passing away, we're people of the future who live in the present without holding on to anything, including marriage, too tightly. And as we do that, we actually show where our ultimate values are and where our ultimate treasure is. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this challenging, difficult Um, and yet delightful passage. And Lord, we know that there's been a lot of uh, maybe this, maybe that, and this view and that view, but we pray, Lord, that you would just implant in our hearts the fact that you call us to an undistracted service to you, to be content in you, whatever our state. And Father, we do pray for our young people. We pray that as they move into the next stage of their life, Father, we pray that you would give them wisdom, We pray, Father, that those who marry would marry well and only in you. We pray, Father, for those who remain unmarried. We pray that they would give themselves wholly to you in such a way that glorifies you. So, Father, we thank you. Lord, no matter what state we're in, that we can glorify you in our calling. In Christ's name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.